Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is freelance writer John Balding once again. Welcome back, John. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. And we also welcome back our friend, TJ Hafer. Hello, hello. And finally, we have GamesBeat's Minister of Skill, Rowan Kaiser. Howdy. Uh, so... For the past week or so, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about difficulty in games across a lot of games media. Now, in other parts of games media, a lot of this has been spurred on most immediately by the latest entry in From Software's uh, line of Souls Likes, I guess is what we're calling that uh, not quite series. Uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Uh, but it is also a discussion that is maybe incomplete. Uh, and affects different genres in different ways. And Rowan, I know this was something that you wanted to get into a little bit because, like, I think you were sort of interested in the sort of different meaning and context the entire discussion has when you, like, compare what is being talked about in the Souls-like discourse uh, versus how that might map onto our little, you know, corner of games in strategy and war games and and tabletop yeah um i mean one of the things that i haven't actually played many souls games or i haven't played them for very long so uh just going by how people talk about them it makes it seem kind of like how people talk about strategy games in some ways like you have to like expect to lose and learn from that and that feels like a fairly normal thing for most of the games we play so i've never saw seen just in terms of how people discuss it like uh how is this so special and different? But uh, the discussion in the past couple of weeks, I think, has taken this interesting turn where difficulty is being paralleled with or directly equated to accessibility. And perhaps in an action role-playing game like A Souls-like, this is the case. Um, I know that there's a lot of ways that you can get into that discussion that are kind of, you know, controversial and uh difficult to like parse out the difference between difficulty and accessibility and so on but with strategy games that's not really an issue like accessibility is pretty much totally separated from difficulty in our little subgenres except maybe for non-pausable real-time strategy games um which is sort of the default at the esports level but other than that like our games have pause buttons and our games have are turn-based and the difficulty is how the AI matches up with you in most cases as opposed to, you know, pressing these buttons is really difficult. And that, I think, might make our perspective on this discussion a little bit different and maybe revealing for people at large or maybe just a good discussion for us to have. Actually, maybe that's... Where we should start uh, is this this sort of blending of the concepts of difficulty and, and accessibility. Because uh, I think that's important to maybe set the stage for our own discussion. Uh, because this is, you know, there's some things that are unhelpful to conflate. And they've got conflated in weird ways in some of the discussions around uh, Sekiro. Uh, and I'm not sure those are those are perfect analogies right like there have been a lot of assumptions made about like uh where gamers with different kinds of disabilities uh or uh you know other sorts of challenges 
where difficulty can affect what is accessible to them. And I feel like that is kind of a course. There's a really coarse approach uh, to discussing this. I feel like this, like describing difficulty as an issue of accessibility when the concept of accessibility is used elsewhere for frankly, maybe more important distinctions uh, seems to me a little bit, a little bit dangerous, a little unhelpful. Um, but I do think we like it is that that move is trying to get at something, which is that difficulty itself, uh, whether that is purely in like mechanical dexterity or pacing challenges or any of that stuff, can form a a, a kind of a, a kind of barrier uh, between between the game and different audiences. I certainly have felt a barrier between me and a lot of from software games. Uh, but I'm not necessarily sure I ever felt like that they were so much as inaccessible to me as uh, games that <laughs> did not fit well with my inclinations or with the nature of my life, is the way I would put it, which which feels like a different concept. I think that's interesting to hear you say, because people say the same thing in a different direction about a lot of strategy games. Like... I would love to play games like Civ or like Europa, but they it simply takes so many hours to accomplish the most basic parts of the game. Um, I'm not sure that that's directly a corollary to the difficulty. Other than that, it's it's interesting to hear the same exact words come out of your mouth in regards to those games because of their difficulty, but not because of the amount of time they take to play. Um, so, John, John, to your point... I think that this is uh, this is where I, I I think things start. You start drawing some distinctions between uh, strategy games and uh, maybe maybe games like the types of you know the types of games that that From Software makes. Uh, I talked a little bit about this on Waypoint Radio last week. I want to say uh, because. Austin and Patrick were specifically interested in like how do strategy games tend to handle handle difficulty, and I gave them the really grossly oversimplified version, which is I sort of explained how difficulty levels tend to work in civilization games. Um, but given that that is one of the most popular strategy series and does reach a really wide audience of people who approach it with wildly varying degrees of skill and interest in the the way they want to play civilization. Uh, I think that's an interesting point of comparison uh, where with civilization, the goal does seem to be there. There's, there's a couple goals. Uh, one is that there are so many different granular ways that difficulty settings tune the game uh, to sort of uh, give you a little bit of a buff or impose a little bit of a, uh, you know the way the phrase I used on Waypoint was like ballasting, right? Like if if you've got mm -hmm. a race car that's just significantly faster than everyone else, some racing series just put extra weight on that car so it is slowed down, and other cars are more competitive uh, with it. Civilization does something similar, where uh, you know in the early stages you are kind of given some some buffs uh, to to help you uh, get a good good get a good run, and then on higher difficulty levels you start encountering like higher penalties. Uh, that maybe overcome your sort of natural superiority to the AI. 
Um, and so with Civilization, you know, in terms of what difficulty means in that series, a lot of it does seem to be centered around this idea of whatever your skill level is. And that also means however fine your understanding of the way the individual systems and mechanics of that game all fit together. Civilization wants you to be able to have a good game of Civilization uh, regardless of what you are bringing to the table. And then I think, John, to your point, it also wants to allow for different ways to for you to sort of express what you want out of Civilization. Do you want just a giant, uh, you know, military-focused battle royale in Civ that you can play out in a day? You can change map settings to allow that. Uh, the idea that civilization need be a long-form entertainment isn't necessarily true. You can uh, constrain the game's action and increase its pace to the point that uh, you can get through a Civ game easily within easily within a day. Or, alternately, if you want to have like the giant epic journey uh, you know, through history, you can also make it be that kind of game. But I think civilization is just an interesting case because... Civilization can be a very hard game, uh, but it feels like despite that, we never really talk about the difficulty of civilization because it kind of allows folks to normalize difficulty in reference to themselves and what they want out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think you're actually very correct that Civ has the intensity of... Um, a strategy game with any number of different settings on or off, right? No matter where you put the sliders, it's going to end up looking like civilization. And that's immediately a hard thing to characterize and to talk about, right? Because how when I'm talking to someone else about civilization, am I even talking about the same game in many ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the game... <laughs> The game I experience when I play Civilization, which is usually on like Prince or King, I'm almost playing a mechanically different game from sort of what, you know, someone like Quill 18 is playing where he streams, you know, deity matches all the time and every single decision he makes has to count and you have to like learn certain ways that the ai is going to behave and how to counter that whereas i'm just usually like i'm just kind of here to tell a cool story about how i you know turned china into a clean energy cultural uh you know superpower or something like that um like i don't i i don't find with a game like civilization that i'm really going to it for um like a strenuous challenge most of the time um there there are games i go to for that i mean i am a a souls player and a you know a, a sekiro player i enjoy those you know for the challenge with strategy games it's that's not always the main draw or even you know a significant draw for me so much as the kind of sandbox aspect of it well i would also say that civilization itself as a game series can be weaker for this um like not just in terms of the difficulty level but in terms of the size of the map how many uh nations or now city states and more recent civs you have on them like for me civilization five and six have become this sort of meta game 
of trying to figure out the absolute ideal set of positioning that I can make the game at the beginning in order to have it be the kind of Civ game that I am actually satisfied playing. And I'm not sure that five and six have been, I've been able to make those tweaks in a way that I really, really like uh, because there are so many options and I have such personal quirks or whatever that it, I spend my time being like, okay, I have, you know, 10 sieves on this media map with, on a, um, with low sea levels that they have just enough room, but that's just one too many. Now I have to start a new game with nine or like I'm doing this, but it's a little too easy. Now I have to raise the difficulty to King. And because I play on very cramped maps, now the AI has two settlers and that's just incredibly unfair to me. That's like tripling the difficulty relative to a spread out map when I just click that one little button. And this, I think, ends up revealing that difficulty has a whole lot of moving parts. Like, you can easily say, oh, they should just more add add more hit points to whatever. Um, but when you do that, there's always these, like, weird external consequences that you can't quite predict, and I think strategy games make that a lot more clear than other games. And I don't think that means that they don't exist in other games, but that because we have so many systems interacting, just like making one supposedly harder or whatever, uh, means a lot of other things change down the road. So my games become less viable just because I play on cramped maps. Like, it's weird. Yeah, well, and I think that that whole ballast thing can interact negatively with some core systems and some core assumptions that you make when you're playing a strategy game. I think the classic one I usually think of is like if I'm playing an RTS and I have it on a harder difficulty, so the AI is getting like free resources of some kind. Um, I always hate it if if like I can go and like take out their you know, their wood base or their oil base or something like that. Like I specifically did this so that they would not be able to build a specific type of unit, but then because of the difficulty settings, they can still build the type of unit that I was trying to deny them access to, which I think is kind of the worst possible intersection of, of, you know, strategy as, as a, a function and, you know, this very kind of brute force way of making it more difficult that we're, we're talking about. Yeah, I I think you're right to point that out. It's especially the mortal sin of Total War games, right? Where the difficulty balancing tends just to be give the AI more stuff as a yeah. as a base or a default. Yeah, it, one of the issues here is that strategy games tend to be built around symmetry in a way that a role-playing game or an action game that's not competitive multiplayer tends not to be, right? With games like Civilization, and this is a thing that I, a drum that I have beaten many times on this show, you start with, you know, 10 other players, whether they be AI or human, in roughly the same situation at the start of a game, and you are racing them in order to get to the end. In Total War, like, some factions have slightly better or slightly worse positioning, uh, or are more likely to get into early wars, but in general, you tend to start with the same size army, the same size province, uh, in every case, and you kind of run with that. And when you're talking about an RPG, it's you against the world, right? 
your your difficulty level is just how much pressure does the AI put back on you when you're interacting with that world. It's not the AI has to recreate what you're doing in a way that you will find satisfying. And that makes strategy game difficulty a lot harder to do when they're doing the symmetrical starts. On the one hand, like, I agree it does make it a lot more difficult to sort of standardize and balance sort of across the board, like to have these really coarse-grained settings translate to satisfying outcomes. Uh, at the same time, and this is the weird thing, um, there's that sort of variability also allows for a lot of player-driven Goldilocksing, I guess I, I'd put it. Um, I, I think one example of this is I'm sure we've all had the experience in various RTSs or uh, I think the the Warhammer series for Total War is a really good example of this too, where there are certain play styles, there are factions, there are civs, whatever, that for whatever reason you just kind of click with more. Like your your general tendencies as a player, your preferred styles, your preferred approaches and tactics, they all kind of mesh well with some factions that you can be better than others and where this gets tri- where this gets tricky and interesting is um so if you're if you're talking about like a warhammer game i think it can get really challenging to leave useful difficulty signposting uh when you're talking about factions that are so wildly variable i was really humbled uh when I decided, eh, what the hell? I was going to start playing the Skaven in uh, mm-hmm. in Total Warhammer Two, and I set it to the normal difficulty that I that I generally use in Total in Total Warhammer. I almost never really had problems with that difficulty, but the Skaven don't operate like any faction I'd used before. I was going completely cold, and like something about them broke my brain. A little bit where they're this entire faction built around, um, I guess what you call like low quality conscript armies, uh, really just uh, real like not human wave attacks, but like rat wave uh, attacks that that are sort of meant to just swamp the enemy uh, and and completely uh, overwhelm them. And one issue there is the Skaven experience is just different from other factions. Like if you, uh, if you have a more standardized play style around what you consider classic total war armies, uh, you know, with heavy infantry, uh, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, archers, that kind of thing. Uh, the Skaven don't cleanly map to that in a lot of ways. Uh, and so the rules you're used to playing by in total war on that difficulty aren't really in effect. Um, and so to learn that civil, like to learn that faction, to learn that civilization, that actually is a case where you might actually need to, the, the difficulty setting, uh, is mostly a guideline, but now you also may need a specific difficulty setting for the faction you're playing and how comfortable you are with that. Where I think this gets really challenging is if you look at, RTS games, I, I suspect this is maybe a problem with the genre that we don't talk about enough or like is an underappreciated challenge with the genre. RTS games theoretically want to have people be on an equal footing online in some sort of fair battle of wits and skills. And 
it, occasionally you'll have like new factions introduced or new new uh, new units for a different faction that maybe favor certain tactics over others and some people will get really really good at at using them and will, it will sort of, sort of open up different different lines of play and that can immediately turn you know that can sort of change what the discussion is. It, it moves from being a difficulty discussion into being a balanced discussion, right? Is this fair? If people find this tactic easier to use and are having a lot of success with it, uh, is that fair or are they now abusing something? Um, I think it's interesting that like in the Sekiro discussion a lot, you're seeing cheesing uh, coming up. And that is a, that is a term that I, most, that I heard the most often in the RTS space, right? When people are, are doing tactics that are successful and they're good at uh, and are really difficult to stop and, unless you really sniff them out early, uh, those things were always identified as like cheese tactics. And often uh, the discussion tended to center on, well, how can we prevent people from doing that at all? Yeah, the slight difference with Sekiro being that when they talk about cheesing, they mean using the game mechanics in intended ways. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, isn't I, I, that always cheesing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a difference between like something the game designers intended and they didn't intended, but it ultimately kind of comes back to, you know, where do you draw the line between what is, you know, an acceptable tactic and what's an unacceptable tactic, tactic and there's not really an easy way to, to define that other than certain competitive communities will develop a meta where they frown upon certain things. Um which is, you know, subjective and, and arbitrary. And I don't think you can ever get anyone to actually agree on it. Um, I think a lot of times it, it tends to be when people feel like there is a specific tactic where the skill required to execute it creates a disproportionately positive income. But that's mm -hmm. also like soon sues the art of war. Like that's like every every like strategy going back as far as you can even talk about the concept that's what people have been doing i mean the south would have won the civil war had they cheesed and turned it into a guerrilla war but robert e lee was just doing what the game designers yeah. intended no but i think this is an interesting parallel because now that you mentioned that tj like and and you know what you sort of said there a moment ago rowan about isn't that kind of what what all cheese is using the using the mechanics uh, that developers put into the game. I mean, this is why so often these discussions do end up circling around to a kind of gatekeeping, right? In a single-player game, you know, a lot of times what you encounter here is that, oh, no, I'm sorry, I deserve the real credit for beating this game because I did it the right way. I beat this boss encounter via the way that the designers intended you to beat it. You found a glitch in its pathing in the level and just beat the hell out of the thing uh, from a place it couldn't get to, right? That's that's how these discussions end up going. And I would say in like in the online competitive space, a lot of times there are certain things that I think people clearly had some problems with. Um, like the fact that, if you remember StarCraft II, um, we talked about it a lot on this show, but the fact that the Protoss could build like buildings in any uh like area of influence around a pylon and then later could also begin warping in units around any pylon uh that was a really core like that was core to the protoss identity it also was a very difficult thing it also created a lot of potential for players to exploit that mechanic 
and catch players from on the other side completely unawares. Um, but it was interesting. That was probably the most extreme example of a thing that was kind of a persistent issue and challenge uh, in StarCraft to, you know, kind of from, from beginning to end. But it has always felt to me like a lot of these these discussions also come back to, um, I guess, a where these things get tend to center on a form of gatekeeping a little bit is this idea that some things will be deemed fair and other things will be deemed unfair, uh, but it is kind of arbitrary. I think most people, TJ would, would for, for online games, would probably agree with your definition where, uh, you know, the amount of skill required to execute a tactic is disproportionate uh, with the likelihood of success for that tactic. But the problem is that it's such an eye, in the, eye of the beholder type of thing, right? Uh, well, why, you know, why aren't you doing the correct counterplays to those strategies? If you know people are trying to do this, uh, why aren't you punishing for it? And a lot of times you see that discussion end up becoming kind of a after the fact legislation of, well, yes, this game exists in the world and it allows all these different expressions of play. But now we, the players or some some factions of us get to decide what is right and moral within that set of rules and on that field of play. Well, you see this outside of games, too. Like, whenever you talk about cheesing in, like, a competitive way, I start thinking about how in the NBA they have been trying to develop rules to stop intentional fouling of players who are really bad free-throw shooters. And, like, this is in the game. It's part of the sport. Like, you're supposed to be able to make free-throws and whatever. It's just really boring and anti-competitive at least in terms of like i want to watch an entertaining competition and i think that's a thing that you know a competitive multiplayer game also has where these cheesing strategies exist at a realm that like makes them uninteresting to watch repeatedly um and (laughs) this maybe goes into like a competitive aspect of a lot of strategy games which as a genre tends to tilt more towards multiplayer than most that aren't like just straight up MOBAs or fighting games or whatever. Um, And I don't know, it makes for some interesting decisions, especially like when I see people talking about how to beat like super hard campaign levels in real time strategy games, because cheesing is extremely appreciated there. Um, as someone who played Warcraft 3 on hard multiple times, and that one has some real beasts of levels that sometimes you just need to, like, make the AI just fuck up totally in order to win, and that's how you do it. I think, turning it back to the more how this plays on the single-player side of things, um, I keep coming back to this idea of, well, I guess... Do you feel like there is as much emphasis in strategy games about what sort of player should even be capable of having a viable run or like playing with any degree of competence of a game? Because, like, let me put this another way I feel like 
a lot of us at one point or another have been that sort of genre evangelist where we think, damn it, like strategy games are great. More people should play them. Boy, Mm -hmm. I wish more people would give them a chance. And in general, I feel like for those of us who have tended to enjoy a lot of the genre, there's, there's been a interest in maybe providing better on-ramps or lowering the barrier to entry uh, for, for games like this. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah. there's, there's, yeah, go on. Well, like, I, I think there's, I think that this is actually an interesting kind of vector to talk about accessibility versus difficulty. Because if I think about a game like Sekiro versus a game like Crusader Kings two, like, I don't think you'll find anybody who would stand up and say like, oh, well, if you didn't play Crusader Kings 2, you know, back when it had no effective tutorial and and you just had to figure out what was going on by the seat of your pants, you didn't really play it. Like, I think that's that's actually a meaningful distinction point when you have like a very, very complex game where a lot of the difficulty just comes from understanding the systems like that's that's kind of part of the game itself uh, or the, the difficulty of the game itself, not necessarily difficulty that was built in, but difficulty that is inherent to the type of game it is where when you get to the point that you are playing quote unquote, as intended, you have, you've sort of removed that barrier. You kind of know what you're doing. Um, That's something that I would say is more of an accessibility discussion than a difficulty discussion, because, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of very complex, especially grand strategy games that could do a lot better explaining their concepts to people without like tweaking how hard the game actually is when you know what you're doing really at all. Like they don't need to give any buffs to the AI. They don't need to, you know, uh, debuff the player or anything like that. Um, It's, it's just purely a case of this. This is a, a simulation with a lot of interlocking systems and they're not doing a good enough job of explaining it to people. Well, on the other hand, we've had some strategy games that we've talked about on here where the actual difficulty of the game is learning the game and that's intentional. Um, That we've had, I think... uh, the people who made uh, Kingdom started calling them micro-strategy games and Kingdom's a very good example of this where... When you figure out how Kingdom works, you beat Kingdom. That's pretty much it. It's like, you know, a 10 to 20 hour learning curve. We had that with Banished, too. Like, Banished is an extremely difficult game initially that as you learn how to, like, set your priorities and uh, get these certain aspects of it correct, it becomes, like, a, I don't know if beatable is the right word, solvable game. yeah, Yeah, it's the victory lap, right? Right. Like you spend 10 or 11 hours learning to play the game and then the 10 hours from there before you beat the game is like, look how great I've done. Yeah, and uh, that's that's one aspect of this genre that is, I don't know if it's like totally different from others. Like maybe you could say that Sekiro was like this, uh, but it does have this aspect where the approachability of the game is the difficulty of the game. Um, I had a friend who started talking about how approachability is a much better word than accessibility for some of these discussions. Yeah. I tend to agree with her on this. This is Victoria Rose, who's a esports journalist. Um, another thing is that 
with strategy games and some other heavily system-based games like role-playing games, you don't necessarily see how the systems interact and are good unless it's actually giving you the right amount of challenge. So when we talk about Crusader Kings 2, a lot of people give the advice that for new players, you should start in Ireland because Ireland is easy. You can take over Ireland fairly quickly, learn all the systems, and congratulations, you're now, you know, competent at this strategy game and can do whatever you want with it now. Whereas my reaction to that is that's bullshit. Ireland is boring. Crusader Kings is only fun when you are on the edge of your seat with everything going wrong and you're about to die all the time. Um, and, you know, this is going to depend on the player. Like, And a lot of players for strategy games won't even know this. Um, I have similar discussions with Mass Effect. Like, people who say that Mass Effect does not have, like, good shooting or whatever, I think, almost always play on, like, normal or easy. But if you play on harder levels, you actually start to see how these systems interact in really interesting ways. Now, whether that person actually wants to do that or not, whether they want to die or not as they play the game, and this is another thing that strategy games and role-playing games and roguelikes and all those have different reactions to is like how how fun is losing and strategy games are in this weird place sometimes to go on to a fourth thought uh where in some of our games losing is fun and intended and this is where you what you get out of it and some of them no you just want to plow through it and have that success you win at the end um and Sometimes people can argue over that just in terms of the same game. I'm thinking of XCOM here, which was another one we've talked about a lot. Uh, so you have these multiple things pulling the idea of difficulty in different directions where sometimes it's good to help you learn. Sometimes it's bad to help you learn. Sometimes it's good to make the game fun. Sometimes it's bad for making the game fun. And, you know, I don't think these are solvable questions. And when I see people arguing about them in terms of other genres, I'm not sure they're solvable as solvable there as they think they are either. It's interesting to hear you say that sometimes losing is fun as a, as a strategy thing, because that's the kind of game that I play an unhealthy amount of, right? Is the losing is fun games. I love my dwarf fortresses and my survival strategy or colony builder or, uh, economic strategy or whatever we're calling it this month kind of games and i really enjoy the fail state of so many of those games and i like to lose and so when i see the discussions like is this game too hard and is that an accessibility issue i think why isn't it fun to lose in that game right what is different about the games that i'm playing and the way that i'm playing them where i when i apocalyptically uh, descend into madness and have everyone in my dwarf fortress die or whatever why did i have so much fun investing a ton of time into something that was by all accounts a failure except it definitely wasn't um and why do i have so much fun losing in games like crusader kings right uh yeah. even though like, I, I personally played crusader kings on like the shittiest easiest difficulties because i've <laughs> never been bothered to learn a lot of the systems in the game oh my god you're not a real gamer get off the podcast um Whereas, because I like to lose in Crusader Kings, but I sort of like to lose in my own ways. Whereas with a game like Europa, I play Europa on really hard difficulties because that's a game that I have a lot of mastery over and can win at. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it has to do with the procedural generation. Like, if I'm playing a game that I know has an ending, 
I think this is why XCOM frustrates me more than I when I lose than CK2 or EU4 does. I know XCOM has an ending. I know that content exists, and I want to see it because it's 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 hand tailored content that is in the game that I haven't seen. I still have not beat XCOM 2 to this day. Um, and in Crusader Kings, it's like I know I'm going to be playing this like a hundred more times, and I'm going to see different stuff every time I play it. Same with Dwarf Fortress, um, you know, same with, you know, colony building games. And it's like, there, yeah, there might be kind of a soft end state in some of these, you know, Dwarf Fortress with, you know, uh, like uh, unlocking the, the demon area or whatever and you know, fighting those guys off. CK2 doesn't really, I mean, the, the end state is wherever you decide it is really, or you run out of time. And I think that's why I like, failing in those games because i don't get that like fear of missing out if i if i fail like i'm not like i'm feeling i'm not feeling like i'm experiencing an incomplete story i'm like this is the story that these systems have helped me tell for this playthrough and a lot of times uh yeah as is the case in in a lot of other media about the middle ages it's kind of more interesting when every it sucks and everybody dies like that's kind of a better story because it rings truer to to us in the real world in a lot of ways wow tj this is a hope punk podcast and you are no longer (laughs) invited (laughs) brutal uh yeah here's a question for you tj did you play any of the older XCOM games, or did you play like Xenonauts? Very, very, very little. I have played some Xenonauts. I have played very, very little of the older XCOM. I just kind of booted it up on a lurk to see what it looked like. Sure, it makes me wonder if that would be different for you uh, in the same game, but there's no cinematic, right? right. There's just and, like a and victory I think that screen is at a the major end. Factor, yeah. I think how cinematic Firaxis made it was a major factor in my continued frustration in not being able to beat it. Well, I mean, this is the, the thing that I talk about with XCOM a lot, is that the new XCOMs feel like RPGs in many ways. They feel yep. like they have direct stories. They feel like you roll your characters and you take those same characters through to the end of the game. Um, and I think when we go back to what Rob said about like how we want people to play more strategy games, XCOM is a strategy game that a lot of people who don't normally play strategy games played. And one of the things that I saw them get consistently frustrated at was that especially with the first one, there was like an almost guaranteed failure state in your first playthrough about 10 or 15 hours in, just because you don't know how the systems work. You don't realize that you should have built more satellites early on. Things slowly spiral out of control. And like, I, I agree that XCOM is kind of a failure in that respect where, um, it takes way too long to realize that something has gone horribly wrong and you had, you had to make a better decision earlier. Uh, but on the other hand, I also like the idea of an XCOM, and this is why I play the Long War, where you can fail slightly a bunch and then still have the chance to win. Um, and like figuring out exactly where that point is, that whether you play on like normal with Iron Man on or on Commander with Iron Man off, or you make yourself play, I usually play on Commander with like an internal Bronze Man where uh, I will only reload missions from the very start and not reload like individual turns, at least as far as I can until I get bored of that and everything fails and uh, it's just a disaster. Uh, But yeah, it's like 
figuring out that point. And because XCOM is such a long game that has various difficulty spikes, like you might think that Commander or Normal is the ideal mode for where you're playing, and then all of a sudden it's not anymore. And, like, the game doesn't really adjust to that terribly well. And, you know, this is also a thing where it's really hard for designers to design these difficulty levels. Like, how can Firaxis know what Rowan Kaiser's personal <laughs> commander-level difficulty should be? Yeah. And why why do we expect that one button on the screen to determine, like, how much enjoyment I get out of a game that's got, like, a 30-hour campaign? Yeah. I think this is where I do tend to get a little bit frustrated with this idea that... Um, that we should have a great deal of deference necessarily for like the intended experience yeah. because I'm not actually sure that there are that many designers who have a great deal of control over how well they can deliver that intended experience. They're making guesses. They can make assumptions, but I actually tend to think that a lot of designers, including very good ones, uh, still don't really know how to get across the game that they want people to feel, like in their bones, gut level, like the experience they want people to have. I don't know that a lot of them are particularly great at trans transmitting that across the entire game design to an audience of strangers, right? Like you just you yeah. like you do not know what people's weird hangups, blind spots, or real world constraints uh, might end up being, like. I think for interest, for for example, Rowan, you and I had a discussion, I think last year or, or so about um, Battle Brothers. And yeah. because I just wanted to see more of the game, I had started save scumming it a little bit. And I was surprised how quickly after making that decision, I started to lose my taste for the game a little bit. And you, you know, you, you sort of counseled me, you're like, look, I think this is a game that really works better when you sort of have to uh you know eat the you know eat your losses uh you have to put up with whatever damage or disabling wounds uh are inflicted on your characters that really does kind of seem to be one of the things this game is about and i agree with that but on the other hand i don't think for a moment that uh you know the developers band battle brothers should have not included a an option to save a game, right? Because that is that is, I think, a bit too presumptuous. There there are if I want to impose that level of difficulty on myself, if I want to have that experience of uh ah, uh, you know, I just have to sometimes I just gotta take my lumps. I have different ways of imposing that on myself. I can go back and and set it to an Iron Man mode. Or I can just sort of do a house rule thing like you just said, Rowan, where, okay, I'm allowed to restart a mission, but I'm not allowed to, like, like save turn by turn and play it from the, from the point where things went slightly wrong. Uh, there's a lot of ways that I can do that. I have no idea what necessarily the intended experience is. I can certainly, we can certainly have discussions about when does it... Where do we think a game's sweet spot is? What do we think a game does best? What makes it special? But I do tend to get really uneasy at this idea that there's some sort of like sacrosanct intended game that we should have a great deal of deference to 
without regard for things like how well does a game handle a difficulty spike uh, or even things as mundane as, look, man, sometimes I've got to go to dinner. You know, <laughs> sometimes I yeah. have shit to do and I need to be able to say, like, look, I'm going to pick this up later or I'm going to restart this later because uh, I don't feel like throwing away all this progress uh, because, like, some real life shit came up. And, and I think that's that is something that, uh, we should we should bear in mind this idea that you know we're just going to be all sitting there uh, completely committed to the game. Um, man, on my best days gaming, sometimes that's the case, but most of the time it's something I fit in around real life. Yeah, I I don't think you're wrong about the idea of an intended experience, and I actually take it one step further and say that the intended experience of these games of many games from looking inside the sausage factory and seeing how game developers make their games and reading if you read how they talk about the process of making bigger games especially so many games are miles away from what the intended experience was simply because they started playing the game and realized it either wasn't fun or had a very different feeling to it when you played it like there are these granular little bits and pieces in games like oh you know say you have to carry enough food supplies to get from point a to point b there's a lot of games where they try things like that they try those little granular very simulationist aspects and they end up not being fun so those things get removed from games and then they get modded into it and for the people who really care and then the yeah the five percent of players who actually would have loved that modded back in I mean, I will say Fallout New Vegas, uh, the Project Nevada mod, is probably the best any game has done with a hunger and thirst system in an RPG. Uh, so it is, it's funny that you say that, because yeah, I usually don't like the versions of that that the developers put in, but I do like that one specific mod a lot. And that's probably because the developers are trying to set it up in a way that they think is both accessible and fun and like actually yeah. creates challenge in a way that a modder, like they're not making money off that. They can just say, here is my very intentional design here. And I think to go back to what Rob said, like he's mentioning Battle Brothers here, which like I like playing that game on Iron Man because like I think that the early aspects of it are the most fun. And I think that, you know, the Iron Man mode actually adds a lot of uh, pressure that the game falls apart with otherwise. Whereas I've actually seen like developers for XCOM say they think that Iron Man is the ideal way to play that game. And I'm just like, no, there are so many just random bullshit things where an alien yeah. can one shot you out of nowhere or you miss your 95% shot or whatever and like that screws you over on that mission and then everything spirals out of control because there are so few characters and like each mission has it's a very specific import to it um that I just cannot imagine like considering the ideal form of XCOM to be Iron Man can I interject um, something there real quick like I I all the respect in the world to uh, Jake Solomon, and I like I genuinely like the XCOM games a lot, but I have always felt a little bit like that notion that you know you you know this game is intended to be played on Iron Man. This is how it should be. Always felt a little bit to me like kind of a um, 
I don't know, like appeal for credibility or like a sop to people who were thinking back to the microprose game and being like, well, are you sure you're going to be hardcore like that was? Never mind the fact that most people who played that game probably save scum the hell out of their way through it. This idea or, that there was... Or the bugs made them play on easy mode regardless of what they chose at the start. Yes. Right. But I think there... I am somebody who took that at face value. I was like, okay, the designers have been very clear about like XCOM 2 has just come out. Okay, fine. Let's do Iron Man. And my first reaction to XCOM 2 was this game fucking sucks. Uh, Because like literally there was too, there were too many curveballs thrown into XCOM that like would sort of throw your, throw you off your game. And there was such a, power curve you needed to stay on uh that it was very hard to bounce back particularly from early setbacks uh until you really had developed a bench it was very difficult uh to sort of get back on track and so my experience playing XCOM 2 at the start as a marketing campaign and a lot of like you know uh discussion around that game had really driven home was okay if you really want to play the real XCOM 2 you you play it on Iron Man and that proved to be, like, for me, catastrophically bad advice. It set me back by a year playing that game. And then I did come back to it. I warmed up to it a lot under the um, War of the Chosen expansion. But even then, when Austin and I started doing a live stream on Iron Man, we had a lot of really, like, smart players who really understood the ins and outs of XCOM uh, in our chat, giving us advice and coaching throughout all that. And time and again, the things that they were warning us about weren't like, okay, here's the here's the pro move. Things they were warning us about were things like, okay, so the interface is super misleading about this particular mechanic, right? <laughs> like, okay, so you probably think you're out of the radius of that particular attack, but actually that's not really going to be how this goes and it'll one-shot you if you don't move right now. And there were a lot of there were a lot of things like that where even like really uh talented, skilled players we're sort of calling out the notion that there's a lot of, even at their level, there's a lot of bullshit in XCOM that you have to work around. And at that point, I think it becomes really self-defeating and really inconsiderate to be out there telling players like, well, you know, the way you're supposed to play this is on, you know, X difficulty. It's like, man, you don't know that. And you may not, you may not actually be as good at communicating or like bringing across a consistent experience as you think when you shipped this game. Yeah, uh, this goes to the game that I was going to head to next, which is actually relevant to when TJ was talking about difficulty and stuff on uh, about Sekiro, and uh, he got a response from one of the people who makes Darkest Dungeon saying, like, every time we have adjusted our difficulty to try to be more accessible or approachable or whatever, then we get people playing this game who don't necessarily get how we're trying to, like, build the game in certain directions. Um, and, like, if I were to say, here is a game that has an intended difficulty where the designers, you know, are actually putting out something very specific that I, as a player, can understand has this intentionality to it, I would say that's Darkest Dungeon, because that is, you know, entirely Iron Man. Um, if it's built in a way where, like, every aspect of the difficulty of that game says, like, you have a lot of cushion to fail, but you will fail, but 
this game is still something that you can progress through despite all this. And, like, even still, Darkest Dungeon, like, a year after, like, full release and, like, two years after early access added a Radiant mode to make it a lot faster to play through. Um, and I don't know that that actually adjusted the difficulty of, like, the dungeons themselves, but it just adjusted the speed of how you managed to get through the game. Um, yeah, it, it it decreases the attrition rate a little bit, too. It doesn't necessarily make the combat easier, but it makes it a little bit harder to, or a little bit easier to keep your guys, like, in good shape. Right. So. so I think, like, sometimes just have, have a really good early access launch that gives you enough money to fuck around with difficulty until you're sure you've got it right is one way that you could, like, try to deal with some of these issues that we've brought up. Um, another thing that I think to sort of switch to, like, what games are doing difficulty right uh, is have a lot of options just not necessarily for like how difficult is this game going to be as you play it but just how do you want this game to exist and a game yeah. that i think has done a really good job with that is crusader kings 2 which yeah. slowly went from having like almost no options except for an extremely ill-defined difficulty mode at the start to having this gigantic page of all right here's every single little yeah. thing that you might want to adjust about this game. Go fucking nuts. And I love that aspect of like how strategy games can build themselves where you just say like, because a lot of these games have very simple mechanics. It's like you get a yes or a no on whether women can inherit kingdoms. Right. Um, and Crusader Kings two says, here is that switch. Yeah. And you can flip it. Well, now. I also, I also think that the paradox games are, almost like one of my examples I hold up of, of how to do difficulty options and strategy games. Well, just in terms of how their asymmetrical starts work. This like, was actually what I was going to next. Yeah. So uh, take it away, TJ. Yeah. Because like one of the most common questions I get asked is like, what is the, yeah. You know, what's the best country for a completely new player in like CK two or EU four. And it's, kind of an interesting question because it's it's usually not a one-to-one -one trade-off you're usually trading some degree of security for some degree of complexity or on one end you've got like a one province miner who has no foreign policy weight to throw around at all and could be eaten by someone bigger at any second but also you have a lot less you have, you have fewer vassals to deal with you have fewer provinces to worry about um you can kind of exist in your own little microcosm until you're ready to get out of the bigger world versus playing, you know, starting as the Ottomans. It's like, you're, you're going to have to try to lose your first few wars. You're going to have to really try, but there's going to be so much internal shit to manage that it might be, you know, overwhelming to some people. And I, I think that that makes grand strategy games particularly interesting in terms of selecting what kind of an experience you want, where you're not really, Picking between easy and difficult, you're just picking how do I want this to be difficult? Do I want this to be more difficult in terms of how dangerous are my neighbors? Or do I want that to be kind of something I don't really have to think about much, but I'm going to be having a lot more, you know, internal stuff going on that's complicated and, and interesting in a different way. Yeah, and this is, this is a really good thing about the Paradox games, even after you get through that initial thing, where you're figuring out who to go with like my general recommendation for people to start with eu4 is muscovy because 
you're not incredibly large at the start, but you have everything you need to become incredibly large as soon as you start to figure this stuff out. Um, and then once you get Russia, then you have the option, am I going to like go into like full-on European war constantly, or am I going to become a colonial power, or am I going to become a Central Asian power? Um, and that, like, that's a good way to play the game when you're new, but once you sort of get the idea of how the game works, you can say, all right, Muscovy is too easy. I want to make Russia, but I want to do it as Novgorod. Uh, or someone who has a lot more difficulty in getting that going, and those options just exist in terms of, like, there are however many dozens or hundreds of playable options when you start an EU4 game, and one of those is likely to be one that makes you happy when you do it. Or you can set up a random game and find someone who seems to make you happy. Uh, it's just having that asymmetrical aspect to it gives it a difficulty that seems there's something there for anyone who manages to get to that point well if you um like this is something i've never fully forgiven total war for moving away from right like the earlier total war games tended to have somewhat historical starts with this idea that like look some people at different points of hi history are basically great powers from the start and sort of the challenge mm -hmm. for them there's the structural factors that maybe push them to decline at some point but like there's all there's there are some people that probably from the beginning are a very good threat to what we call like sort of blobbing across the map right just being unstoppable um and for some reason total like creative assembly decided that was a major problem and began doing these historic start historical starts where everybody is somehow just on like two provinces really similar provinces so like uh, for Empire, for instance, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, you know, Prussia is just, like, two provinces. So is Austria. So is France. Like, turns out nobody in this era actually controls their own countries. Uh, you know, if you're if you're England, like, your first step is, like, well, time to go suppress Wales in yep. 1740. It's like, no, <laughs> that doesn't make any freaking sense. Warhammer, every major faction has some weird rebel uh, breakaway state that they have to conquer in the first 20 turns to justify them starting off small. Right. And, and also to train new players on how to like manage their armies with a directly equivalent faction right next to you that's just weak enough that you can stomp on them. Yeah, it's uh, it makes sense, but it also doesn't. Right, and I think it's caused some real problems in terms of, like, I think us, like, like Rowan, what you just laid out is that asymmetrical starts can also be a bit of a another form of customization or also a safety valve for, like, how you want to onboard yourself into a game, right? Like, just you can't just dive into EU4 anywhere uh, and just start, like, making moves. There's, there's places where that is really tough. You're going to encounter different problems, but there are some decent suggestions for starting factions where you'll be engaging with a lot of systems from the start but you won't necessarily you'll have a little cushion um and i feel like with a a problem that total war kind of created for itself is that if that difficulty curve is off at all that neat progression from two province minor power to being like a titan bestriding the map is actually really delicate Right? Like, if you don't, again, if you don't stay on that power curve neatly, if you have a few setbacks, it's easy to start feel, feel, 
feeling trapped in a total war game uh, a modern total war game in a way that it just didn't when you were getting into like medieval one or something and okay what should i do how do i get into this well you can play the ottomans good luck trying to lose that game just roll over everybody uh you can uh sorry not the ottomans the Byzant- uh, byzantines uh in medieval they they had a very they had a really powerful start and some really powerful units at the, at the beginning um but when you sort of try to standardize the experience, okay, everybody's, we have to make it this, it's a single player game, but somehow we're going to impose this ideal of fairness uh, and replicability across every single play experience people can have. Uh, I think you've actually invented a harder difficulty problem uh, than you necessarily want. Yeah, I'd, I'm not sure that I would say like that's an old versus new thing because Shogun had, you know, starts with these roughly equivalent daimyos for its playable factions. And then there was the whole original Rome Total War thing of dividing Rome into three equivalent factions yeah. that all have the same start. So I think that's a thing that the series has sort of been struggling with from the beginning. Medieval definitely was super unbalanced in ways both good and bad. Um, but... Uh, Sorry, I lost where I was going with that. Someone else carry on. Well, uh, <laughs> fantastic episode, everyone. Yeah, well done. Uh, I think I think we nailed it. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe the the final point I like I just want to bring up here. I feel like an element of why this discussion became such a hot button topic is that the minute the conversation turned into uh, how difficult should these games be, it was really interesting to me how self-conscious people who generally you'll always find celebrating how challenging and punishing uh, the Souls games can be, uh, immediately started feeling self-conscious about that kind of rhetoric because it feels like with Sekiro... um, this was kind of a moment where you start looking around and okay, well, who else? Who else is saying things like this? Who else <laughs> is sharing, uh, you know, my love of this particular kind of challenge and really feeling the, you know, their heart bursting with pride at having triumphed at this game? And it was like the minute people looked around and realized that you were encountering some really like toxic creeps. Uh, who really fetishized the difficulty of Souls games and really felt like there was a moral superiority uh, that people who played these games the right way uh, should be allowed to sort of lord over uh, you know, other sorts of players who maybe bounce off these games or cheese their way through them. The minute there was that sort of realization about how this rhetoric was being used in other places, suddenly there was this desire to sort of backpedal from it and reframe the problem that had just been newly identified. And I think this is, this has been a part of this, this entire discussion that's, that's really interested me uh, because I feel like maybe it's more noticeable around games like Dark Souls and Sekiro because maybe there, there just aren't, that many sort of mainstream hits uh, where the conversation centers on issues of challenge and difficulty. Uh, and that sort of centers this. Whereas I suspect in places, you know, in, in, in strategy spaces, uh, for instance, um, 
I don't know. These dis- these discussions feel like they've been sublimated uh, a little more effectively. Like we all know the elitists are out there. We all know that like there are people who are like, well, if you don't play uh, these game these games with these settings, uh, you know, you don't really play them at all, or you're probably incompetent at them. We know those people are out there, but also this in general, a lot of games like this have a tradition of allowing levels of customization and for you to set your own level of like buy-in to the to the difficulty and the challenge that it feels to me at least like we've been able to sidestep or ignore a lot of the more toxic elements that crop up when you start really emphasizing how many people a game chases off with its complexity and its challenge yeah, and I mean, there was there was a little bit of that. I felt like when Hearts of Iron 4 came out, there was a discussion that was similar to the Souls discussion where they felt like, you know, there were old, you know, Hearts of Iron grognards that kind of felt like it had been oversimplified uh, to serve a market that they felt they were being, you know, ignored. But, you know, I, I, I do think you, in general, are, are pretty spot on in, in terms of just the strategy community has a different relationship with the concept of difficulty than than uh uh the gaming community at large might which is kind of what rowan's initial thesis was yeah like i think that you know probably the people who have the most uh discussions of difficulty and have figured out like where these ideas can be most you know analyzed or whatever are roguelikes because you're supposed to lose those strategy games are also kind of supposed to lose and i think that this helps us in that respect like that you're supposed to play them more than once as opposed to they are a single journey that you go on in order to get to an ending Um, and this is one of the things about the Sekiro discussion is that like a lot of the assumption seems to be that it is inherently worth it for anyone to be able to play these games and get to the end for whatever reason and i don't know why people think that like maybe it's just that they think that from soft does it has amazing aesthetics and amazing storytelling and, you know that's fine um but like with a strategy game you know that like the ending is not necessarily the important thing except with something like an XCOM. uh it's the actual process of going through it. And that process includes losing. So difficulty for us becomes some somewhat more complex than does this give people a challenge throughout their single experience with our game? It's how can we make this game fit as many people wanting to play it as many times as they want over and over and over. Uh, And, you know, those, those discussions seem more fruitful to me possibly because I do play strategy games, but possibly just because I think there's a lot more nuance and the like in those. Yeah. I think that ultimately it's part of the audience self-selecting, but I also think that strategy developers just seem much more willing to let players tweak what they want, let players mod what they want. And in the case of games in the strategy genre, at least in the last decade or so, where you're not allowed to do those things, they are what we're calling micro-strategy games. They're things like Kingdom uh, or Islanders that just came out where you're not really able to change that much, but also the game is simple enough that it is intended to just be mastered quickly. Maybe you lose a couple times, and then you get to win. 
Well, I think that will uh, do it for this week. I think we've solved the difficulty discussion and yes. revealed that the strategy space uh, is, as we always suspected, a place of enlightenment and open-mindedness uh, when it comes to the, the truest currency of all, uh, human kindness and welcome and being welcoming to strangers. Uh, anyway... Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show. And speaking of being welcoming to strangers, discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, that link also has further information about our super secret Discord server, uh, but not exclus- exclusive or exclusionary where we occasionally talk about strategy games uh, actually is highly exclusionary. There's a, there's a Patreon backing tier, uh, but be, <laughs> you know, beyond that, uh, you, can I think we're, you can get in by cheesing it. Yeah. We're, 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 we're super welcoming, uh, provided, um, a growing cadre of lefties doesn't chase you off. <laughs> uh, Thanks TJ. Oh yes. It is all TJ. That TJ just raging <laughs> oh, yeah, out of control just, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like any of the people who turned me to the left are literally like admins of the server or anything. No, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, perish, perish the thought. Uh, all right. Well, we will be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for TJ, for Rowan, for John, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.